Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. A portmanteau is a word that's a blend of two other words, like brunch or bradgelina. And there's that scene from the movie Along Came Polly where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character introduced a new portmanteau into our lexicon. What happened to you? Hey, Reuben, I'm in a situation here. We have to leave now. Well, no, can we stay a couple more minutes? But dude, no. This is serious. I just sharted. I don't know what that means. I tried to fart and a little shit came out. Oh. I just sharted. Right now, let's go. Like the word shart, the word gerrymander is a portmanteau. It's a blend of Elbridge, Gary, and Salamander. Gary was the governor of Massachusetts when the legislature drew up some crazy-looking Senate districts in 1812, and a cartoon in the Boston Gazette soon depicted one of the oddly-shaped districts as a winged creature with claws and a dragon-like head, and then called it a gerrymander. Somewhere along the way, we changed the hard G to a soft G and started using the term gerrymander to describe any kind of manipulation of district boundaries that seems like an unnatural grouping and is designed to advantage one party or group of voters over another, or even one elected official over another. You can draw districts to spread certain voters out over multiple districts so they don't have significant influence in any one district. Or you can pack certain voters all into one district to limit their influence in every other district. You can draw district lines so that an incumbent has to run in a new district, or two incumbents have to run against each other. Voters might be grouped based on regional interests, racial identity, partisanship, or any number of factors. And the redistricting process is usually overseen by the legislature. And that process just is going to be political in the rough-and-tumble way that legislative negotiations are political. There's a clash of interests and values and a messy process that leads to an outcome that reflects those clashing interests and values in that messy process. Gerrymandering is a well-established American tradition. What does the Constitution have to say about it? Nothing directly, but the 14th Amendment to the Constitution ratified in 1868 says that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws. Does that mean certain kinds of gerrymanders are off-limits? Yes, but not all. We'll look briefly today at three different examples drawn from three different cases. Reynolds v. Sims in 1964 about malapportioned districts. Shaw v. Reno in 1993 about racial gerrymandering. And Rucho v. Common Cause in 2019 about partisan gerrymandering. Starting with Reynolds v. Sims, the case came to the Supreme Court after voters in Birmingham complained that the Senate districts in Alabama were not even close to equal in terms of population. The population of the districts ranged from hundreds to hundreds of thousands, but each Senate district was represented by one senator, regardless of the population size in the district. That might remind you of the U.S. Senate, which is quite malapportioned. California has 39 million people and two senators. Missouri has just over 6 million people, and we also have two senators. This is because the framers of the Constitution didn't think per capita equality was the most important feature of representation. States were pre-existing sovereigns, and they were equally represented in the Senate. It's a hardwired feature of our Constitution that affects the formula for the Electoral College as well. The states frequently did something similar with their state senates. Counties might have equal representation in the state Senate, but be very different in terms of population size. 
And one reason that was sometimes given for this was regional representation rather than per-person representation. State legislatures argued that it was important to have regional representation, meaning rural representation, rather than allowing urban population centers to dominate legislative politics. But the Warren Court, in a case called Baker v. Carr, which we discussed when we talked about the political question doctrine, had articulated the principle of one person, one vote for state legislative apportionment under its interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. And so, in Reynolds v. Sims, the court held Alabama's malapportioned Senate districts unconstitutional. As Chief Justice Warren said in that case, legislators represent people, not trees or acres. Legislators are elected by voters, not farms or cities or economic interests. According to the Supreme Court, malapportioned districts deny individual voters the equal protection of the laws by diluting their individual vote. There must be roughly equal population in each district. In drawing those equal districts, then, what kind of criteria can a legislature or redistricting body take into account? Shaw v. Reno brings up the question of race. Under the Voting Rights Act, North Carolina had to submit their plan for redistricting to the U.S. Attorney General for preclearance before the new districts would take effect. The Attorney General objected that the plan only created one district with a majority black population. North Carolina revised its map to include two districts with majority black populations, but the second one was not a natural shape. The district was 160 miles long, much of it no wider than Interstate 85. It was hard to explain why it would be drawn in this way for any other reason than trying to put black voters into the same districts. Voters in North Carolina sued. They argued that the use of race here was itself a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And the conservatives on the court agreed. In a 5-4 decision with Rehnquist, Scalia, O'Connor, Kennedy, and Thomas in the majority, They argued that the use of race required a high level of justification and triggered what the court calls strict scrutiny. It doesn't mean that race can never be used as a factor in redistricting, but it does put a heavy burden on the government to justify why race is being used in this way. Things look different, though, when the reason for drawing districts in a certain way has to do with people's partisan affiliation rather than their race. This is what we call a partisan gerrymander, and in the 2019 case of Rucho v. Common Cause, the Supreme Court held that partisan gerrymanders presented non-justiciable political questions. And quick reminder, political questions are those that the Supreme Court has held are not appropriate for judicial resolution. They have to be worked out through ordinary politics. In Baker v. Carr, the case about malapportioned districts where the court first articulated the one-person, one-vote standard for state legislative districts, the court also listed some of the criteria that could be used to identify a political question. The six criteria from Baker v. Carr were these. First, there must be a textually demonstrable constitutional commitment of the issue to coordinate political department. Or, second, there might be a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving the conflict. Or third, there might be an impossibility of deciding the case without making an initial political determination of a kind clearly for non-judicial resolution. Or fourth, there might be an impossibility of a court's undertaking independent resolution without expressing lack of the respect due to the coordinate branches of the federal government. Or fifth, there might be an unusual need for unquestioning adherence to a political decision already made. Or sixth, and finally, there might be a potentiality of embarrassment from multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question. As you recall, these criteria are mainly about the separation of powers of the federal government. As the court formulated the political question doctrine, it's mainly a way to determine when to stand down and defer to the judgments of Congress or the president. 
In the context of gerrymandering of congressional districts, though, the question falls in the first instance to the states. The states are responsible under the Constitution for drawing congressional districts, subject then to review by Congress. The Elections Clause of the Constitution says only this, quote, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the place of choosing senators. Does that mean that the manner of drawing districts is non-justiciable? And if it isn't justiciable for partisan gerrymandering, why would it be justiciable for racial gerrymandering or for malapportioned districts? What's the difference? That's exactly the question that comes up in Rucho versus Common Cause, a kind of follow-up case to Shaw versus Reno, which is the North Carolina racial gerrymandering case from 1993. Rucho also involves a claim of gerrymandering coming out of North Carolina. Like Shaw, it also involved a map rejected for preclearance by the Department of Justice. The claim in this case, though, is about partisan gerrymandering rather than racial gerrymandering. Republicans in North Carolina controlled the legislature, and they drew new congressional districts that advantaged Republicans. The preliminary question for the Supreme Court in this case is whether they can hear and decide the case in the first place. And the conservative majority on the court, now in 2019, including Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, said no, holding that partisan gerrymandering is a political question and it's not appropriate for judicial resolution. And this is because of that second criteria from Baker versus Carr, the lack of judicially discernible and manageable standards to decide the legal question. This is how Chief Justice John Roberts explained things in his opinion announcement and how he distinguished partisan gerrymandering from racial gerrymandering or malapportioned districts. After the 2010 census, North Carolina needed to redraw its congressional districting map to ensure that the population of each district was equal. Republicans controlled the General Assembly and, therefore, the districting process. The lawmakers in charge hired an expert mapmaker to draw a districting plan that would preserve the partisan makeup of North Carolina's congressional delegation, which at the time included 10 Republicans and three Democrats. One of the Republican lawmakers in charge of the process stated that he wanted a map that would likely elect 10 Republicans because he did not think it was possible to draw one that would elect 11. His stated reason was that he thinks electing Republicans is better for the country than electing Democrats. The districting committee approved the criteria and the map by a party-line vote. North Carolina used that map in the 2016 and 2018 congressional elections, and the map performed as expected. The legal question presented is whether such partisan gerrymandering claims are justiciable, that is, whether they are suited for resolution by the federal courts. Last year, we had a case out of Wisconsin, Gill versus Whitford, in which we reviewed all of our partisan gerrymandering cases going back 45 years. We said then that it was unclear whether such claims could be brought. The reason was that federal courts are limited to resolving claims of legal right according to legal principles. If there are no judicially discernible and manageable legal standards to decide a claim, then the claim is properly viewed as a political question, not a legal one, and outside the court's jurisdiction. Now, the first place to look to see if there are standards for deciding whether something is unconstitutional is, of course, the Constitution. The people who wrote the Constitution certainly knew about partisan gerrymandering. There's a famous episode involving the election to the very first Congress where George Washington complained about Patrick Henry 
trying to gerrymander Virginia's districts to favor James Monroe over James Madison. It didn't work. But the framers didn't put any legal standards about districting into the Constitution. Instead, what they did in the Elections Clause was provide that such issues should be decided by the state legislatures in the first instance, subject to review by the Congress. That's all they said. There's not much to go on there, except to note that nobody thought that the solution was to go to court and have judges figure out what to do. There's no standard in the Constitution, so what do you as a judge do? Maybe you just say it's unconstitutional to take partisanship into account at all in districting. But if you read our opinion in Gill and our other districting cases, you will see how that's a non-starter. Those cases all say that it is permissible to take partisan interests into account. The question is not whether you can do it, but how much is too much. So maybe you look at other areas where we know that there is judicial review of districting practices, the one-person, one-vote cases, and racial gerrymandering. But they don't help either. Partisan gerrymandering is not a simple math problem like one-person, one-vote, nor is it something that's completely impermissible like racial discrimination. Racial discrimination is against the law. Partisanship is not. You can take race out of politics, but you can't take politics out of politics. Again, the question is how much is too much? What is the standard, the legal rule? So maybe you look at the statewide vote. If a party gets 40 percent of the vote statewide, shouldn't it get about 40 out of 100 seats? But then you look at our cases again, going way back, and you see that this sort of proportional proportional representation is not constitutionally required. How could it be? In the beginning, about half of the states elected their representatives at large. If your party won 51 to 49 percent statewide, you got all of the representatives. Besides, if you tried to ensure each party its fair share of seats, that would mean drawing mostly safe seats for each side, which would not seem to be fair to the minority in each district. So back to the drawing board. What about making each of the districts as competitive as possible so that either party could win in each district? But you need to understand what that means. It means small margins in as many districts as possible so that even a narrow victory by the majority would likely lead to a landslide for that party in the legislature. Is that fair? Or what about following established political divisions and other traditional districting criteria? If one party's voters are congregated in particular areas, say cities, that will hurt them statewide because of the natural packing of their voters. And there is always a debate about what counts as a traditional districting factor. One of the most usual factors is drawing districts to protect incumbents. Now, one proposal says you should run a computer program to generate the least partisan map and then generate hundreds or even thousands of others with variations, ranging from slightly partisan to very partisan, and then line them up according to the degree of partisanship, then see where the challenge map falls on that spectrum. But then what? How do you decide where the line is between acceptable partisanship and partisanship that goes too far? Is it a 20 percent departure from the median, 40 percent, 60 percent? There is no legal standard for deciding. The judge would just be picking a number out of the air. Other judges in other states would pick different numbers. Now, it's true judges have to decide things like whether there's a substantial risk all the time. But from common experience, we have a general sense of what that means. The risk that you might stub your toe is one thing. The risk that you might lose your leg is another.
But there's no way to tell whether 20 percent departure in districting from the median is too much or whether 40 percent is. Deciding among just these different visions of what's fair, and you can imagine others, poses basic questions that are political, not legal. There are no legal standards in the Constitution for making such judgments, let alone limited and precise standards that are clear, manageable, and politically neutral. If these kinds of questions about the procedures by which we allocate political power are intractably political and involve conflicts about fundamental notions of fairness that can't be resolved by clear legal principles outlined in the Constitution, where does that leave our other contested questions about the political process? Next week, we'll conclude our class with two related questions. The first about campaign finance regulations, and the second about the Electoral College and the way we administer our presidential elections.